time. Jesus, thank you so much. You have been so good to us, Lord. And, and God, we are grateful for you to bring us here, God. It, it is so good to be here, to worship you, to be with God's people. God, I thank you for just a gathering tonight, those who are connected online, Lord. And most of all, we thank you, Jesus, for being in our lives. For none of this would be going on tonight, Lord, without you and you in our lives. So we give you glory right now. And Lord, I pray that you would bless your word, God, anoint it with your spirit. God, may the word of God speak to the people of God through the power of the spirit of God tonight, Lord. So anoint your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have to tell you about this Pakistani Muslim priest named Zahid. He actually had gone around and he would ambush Christians like grab their Bibles, burn their Bibles. He brought like total hostile persecution on any believers there in that country. Then to prove that Christianity was a lie, he kept one of the Bibles that he took to burn. He actually kept it to study it. Well, this is what he shared. I read the Bible looking for contradictions I could use against the Christian faith. Then all of a sudden, a great light appeared in my room and I heard a voice call my name. Crazy, yeah? The light illuminated the entire room. The voice asked, Zahid, why do you persecute me? And then Zahid wrote, I was so scared I didn't know what to do. I asked, who are you? The voice said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, he went on to share that this happened for the next three nights. The light and the voice returned. And on the fourth night, he knelt down and accepted Jesus as his Savior. Awesome, yeah? Well, because of his conversation to Christianity, Zahid was arrested. He was imprisoned for two years as a traitor to Islam, tortured, and then sentenced to death. Well, when time came for his execution, a noose was placed on his neck. Zahid told the executioners that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life because he wanted his last breath to be used to save his own countrymen. Well, then suddenly, guards rushed in and announced a stay of execution, and Zahid was released. No one knows why. No one knows what ha happened. But you know what? Today... Zahid continues to travel around Pakistan, but this time as an evangelist for Jesus Christ. Kind of cool story, huh? It's awesome to think for me how God's grace, just pure grace, reached out to Zahid and saved him. And you know what? It was God's grace who also called Zahid to be evangelist because before he was persecuting Christians. Well, tonight... In our study in the book of Acts, we, we actually find a similar story of how the apostle Paul well, got saved. And it's very similar to that. And really, it was, he was saved by grace. And then we know his story. We have his letters in our Bible. He went on to be used in ministry. And you know what? That was all by grace too. So I've titled our message tonight, Saved by Grace and Called by Grace. Saved by Grace and Called by Grace. And this is actually part one. I re tried really hard to put it all together from verse 1 through 19, but I just ran out of time or room for what I thought, well, we could be here all night with this subject. So I split it up with this week and next week. So it's saved by grace and called by grace, part one. And actually, the, tonight we're going to be looking at this first part, saved by grace. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 9 from verse 1 through 9 tonight. Verse 1 through 9. Now our overall outline is this, the hostility, number one. Number two, the humbling. And next week, we'll see number three, the honor. So basically, this is our points, the things we will see, hostility, humbling, and honor. Next week, where we finish up, verses 10 through 19. Well, let's begin here. Saved by grace and called by grace. We're going to begin with number one. The first thing we see is the hostility, the hostility. And here, we're going to be covering verses one and two, verses one and two. I'll well, take a look at these verses right now. It reads here in Acts chapter 9, 
verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And we'll stop right here. Now, we begin with Luke, the writer here. He's contrasting uh, chapter 8 as we get into chapter 9 by using that conjunction, that connecting words, but Saul. If you remember in chapter 8, there was a revival going on, right? Because of persecution in Jerusalem, the, the believers all scattered. They, they went out into the surrounding areas, which actually fulfilled the Great Commission, Right When Jesus said in Acts chapter uh, 1-8 that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, Philip was the, sto- the guy, the focus in chapter 8, and he went into Samaria, and through him, right, a revival started. And then we saw uh, God brought him into uh, uh to that Ethiopian eunuch, right, on that road, in that desert road to Gaza, and that Ethiopian eunuch got saved. But in contrast to all this that was going on, with God moving in a great way, people were getting saved, people were getting filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, then we come into verse 1, and the writer, he says, but Saul now. Now Saul here is Paul, the Apostle Paul. This is his original name before Christ. Days Maybe before you were with Christ, your B.C. days, we say, you know, maybe you had a different name or at least people looked at you differently, right? Well, this is Saul here, and it's actually the Apostle Paul. And this is the testimony of his conversion. It's a story of how he came to be saved in Jesus Christ. But it begins here, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So the way Luke writes this is, is, is really giving us a picture, a feeling of, of where Paul was at or Saul was at. I'm going to be exchanging the words, so don't judge me. Um, <laughs> just so used to Paul. But where Saul was at, he, he was totally consumed. When we read here, he was breathing threats and murders. He was totally consumed to root out, get at all the Christians who were defaming Judaism, who was bringing down Judaism. In his mind, the Christians were teaching heresy when they taught about Jesus as the Messiah and salvation in Jesus, that they were blaspheming God. If you remember when we saw back in the previous chapter, in chapter 7, how there's that whole discussion, right, with Stephen when they arrested him before he was stoned to death. Well, that was the whole heart of Saul, and he was, he was like very consumed, passionate about getting rid of believers. And I was thinking, it's like getting rid of pests. You know, you need to exterminate them, right? And then my mind went to Doctor Who and the little alien exterminate, exterminate. You know, that, that's, that was Saul. That was, that was him. He wanted to go all around and get rid of the Christians. So we read here in verse 1 that Saul then went to the high priest, which is basically the, the head guys there, and asked him for letters. Or we could understand that this is kind of like documents or, or letters of authority, maybe official permits, so that he could go to the synagogues at Damascus and so that if he found anybody that were saved in there, uh, belonging to the way, men or women, that he, he could grab them, arrest them, uh, take them as prisoners back to Jerusalem and, and hold them before the Sanhedrin, like have a hearing and really come down upon them. Uh, it's interesting here that he wanted to go to the synagogues. Now, I was reading that back then in the early church that many Jews were getting saved, but they would still go to synagogue, and they were still going there. So it could be that Paul got wind that, oh, hey, there's these, there's these, synag- there's these believers there. They're going to synagogue, and you know what? They're talking about Jesus. They can't do that. And so you can see him even more enraged that these Jews were in the synagogue talking about Jesus, and he probably got wind of that. So that's why he was heading toward Damascus. Now, Damascus 
Uh, it's in Syria, we know that today, in that same place, about 160 miles from Jerusalem. So here's Saul, uh, north of Jerusalem. Here's Saul, he got official papers to root out Christians in the Damascus synagogues to arrest and bring back those uh, uh, believers back to Jerusalem and hold them in trial, basically. I want you to notice something here in verse uh, 2. It says, so that if he found any belonging to the way. So Christians back then, or Christianity, was starting to be called the way. And you know why that is? Jesus said in John fourteen six, right? I am the way, right? The truth and the life. So these early believers were, were believing the way. They were into the way. In that sense. So that's why we read this here. And Luke writes this. So Saul was consumed with stopping this movement. Now understand Saul. He, he was birth, by birth a Jew. He was by citizenship. He was a Roman. By education a Greek. By career he was a Pharisee. Remember that. Uh, most likely he did belong to the Sanhedrin because it seems like in Acts 26.10 that he cast his vote also against believers for them to be arrested. And it seems, remember I mentioned this the other week, that Saul led the persecution in Jerusalem. That in Acts chapter 7.58 when Stephen was stoned, right, they laid the coats uh, their coats at his feet, which is normally they, uh, that's something to do with, with authority. Like if he's in authority, they would lay their coats there. So he could be the head guy leading up this persecution in Jerusalem. And so on hearing that the believers in the way that they're in these Jewish synagogues in Damascus, well, he got his entourage, his guys, to travel 160 miles north to arrest and bring back uh, these Jews who had defected to face the Sanhedrin. So this is Saul. This is him. He's, he's really breathing. He's consumed, threatening these people to, and, and even uh, partaking and putting them to death. And so here's the first thing I want you to see. The hostility of Saul was brutal and legendary. It, it, it was bad. It was legendary. Take a moment, turn over to the right to Acts chapter 26. Now in the book of Acts, and we'll be seeing this later when we get there, that in Acts 22 and 26, Paul actually shares his testimony. And then in Acts 26, he's sharing his testimony. And, and this is him talking here when he was before Agrippa. And I want you to see what, what he said about himself in Acts 26 verse 9 through 11. So he's sharing his testimony. He's saying, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Then in verse 10, and I did so in Jerusalem. So there he is, right? He's focused in Jerusalem. Uh, maybe he was the leader, uh, perhaps. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And then verse 11, and I punished them often in all synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So that's how, how consumed he was. That, he was. This was it. I mean, what he was doing, it wasn't just a weekend thing he was into. This was like, this is my life right now. He was, he was living, breathing, sleeping, eating, all this to get rid of the believers, get rid of those in the way. And so the hostility of Saul was brutal and legendary. You can see, right, that... He, any of us, we can be sincerely zealous, as he was. He thought he was doing right. These guys are blaspheming God, right? But it was totally wrong, right, what he did. It was misguided zeal. And I just want to pause for a second to maybe think about that. That be careful that our zeal might be misguided and not really what God would want. And we're going to see that unfold here. So the hostility of Saul was brutal and legendary. 
And you know what's interesting is during the, the Soviet Union days, there was this 18-year-old, his name was Sergei uh, Kordakov, and he became actually known as the Soviet Saul. He took on that name. Uh, he was part of the KGB, and he was directly responsible. This is why they called him the Soviet Saul. He was directly responsible for 150 raids on homes where believers were meeting. He'd go in there, beat them up, even killed some of them. Interesting to me. But you know what? When he witnessed the suffering of Christians, it actually started to bring doubt on his communist beliefs. And he ended up escaping the Soviet Union, defecting to America, and he got saved. He became a Christian. Crazy, yeah? Sadly, though, when he was 22, he was assassinated in Los Angeles. So we see the hostility of Saul. We get the picture of where he's at right now. Let's go on to our, our second thing we're going to see is the humbling. The humbling. And here we're going to see verses 3 through 9, which is really the rest of the uh, scriptures we're going to see tonight. First of all, though, take a look at verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. We'll stop right there. Now, Saul, he's on his way to Damascus. He heard about the synagogues there, that there's some guys in the way, believers there, and he's going to go root them out, find them, grab them, arrest them, bring them, drag them back to Jerusalem. So on the way, as he's approaching Damascus now, suddenly, verse 3 says, a light from heaven shone around him. You know what that was? It was the glory of God. It was the glory of God. In Acts 26, he actually says that it was brighter than the midday sun. So this was unusual. This is, this is, this is something different. Yeah, It's not just, oh, high noon or anything like that. But it was the glory of God shining down upon him. And it stops him in his tracks. It stops this whole entourage, all this group of guys going toward Damascus. And then... A voice speaks now. Uh, uh, as they were falling to the ground, uh, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who's this voice? Who's talking? Jesus. That's right. It was Jesus. Actually, if you peek over to Acts nine seventeen, Ananias, who we're going to talk about next week, he said in verse 17, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road. It was Jesus who appeared. And Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 9:1, Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? So this is definitely Jesus Christ speaking. It's Jesus in all of his glory shining here, brighter than the midday sun. So no wonder they're falling to the ground in verse 4. In verse 7, we see the men who were traveling with them stood speechless, hearing a voice, seeing no one. Uh, actually, in, in the other testimony, Acts 22, I think, or Acts 26, uh, they, it, Paul actually said that they fell to the ground too. So maybe they, this was when they stood later or before they fall. But either way, everyone felt it. Everyone, it, it was just sent, the sense of the presence of the Lord Jesus. And it stopped this whole group, this whole uh, uh, caravan, the, this, all this entourage. It stops them and it stops Saul dead in his tracks. Well, here's the first thing I want you to see. In this humbling of Saul, the humbling of Saul, it started when he actually saw Jesus Christ. In all his glory. I mean, can you imagine though? I mean, when God's glory shining down, it's not, to me, it's not just a light. Yeah. It's that Shekinah glory. It's, you can sense it. You can feel it in your spirit. 
Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's more than a feeling. It's, it's the, the Spirit of God. It's, it's all, God, right? There's presence in a strong and awesome way. And this humbled Saul, it stopped him in his tracks. It, the humbling of Saul really started when he actually saw Jesus Christ in all his glory. And you know what the interesting thing is here? The interesting thing is, what was the last thing that Saul heard, or one of the last things I should say, that Saul heard Stephen say before Stephen was stoned to death back in chapter 7. Do you remember? I see the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, Acts 7, 56. So if you make that connection, it's like, oh my gosh, he sees Jesus. This is Jesus. It's just like what Stephen was saying before he died. This, this is reality coming upon Saul. Well, then the voice, which is Jesus, was saying, he called out to him, right? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, when God says Saul, Saul, when he says the name twice, that means he's in trouble. <laughs> it's a rebuke, basically, you know. It's getting his attention, right? It's like we call our kids, yeah, their full name, right? Here, he says it twice. And notice here, that Jesus saying, look, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting the apostles? Why are you persecuting the men and women of the way? Why are you persecuting the Christians or the believers? But Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? You know what that means? That means that Jesus is truly the head and the church is his body. That's what it means. And when the body is attacked, the head feels it. Believers in Jesus are tied together here. Isn't that interesting? Zechariah 2, 8, the second part says, He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Now take note in Acts chapter 26, 14, uh, Paul adds that the Lord had said, uh, um, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. And uh, some, uh, the New King James actually adds it here, but most modern translations don't have it here in our passage in Acts 9. But the, uh, it, it's act, the goat is actually to stick with nails on the end to prod cattle. And Saul was kicking against that. In other words, he was going against the Lord. He was going, he was going against God himself. He thought, right, he's doing God's work. By ridding the world of Christians and believers. He thought this was for the Lord. That, that he was the guy for God to, to do this for him. But he was actually, everything, his zeal was misguided. And it was against God. So with that in mind, God really with this light, with what he said. Paul, he says in verse 5, who are you Lord? I, I think he knew. I, I, I think he, he knew it was Jesus. I think he, he, he knew it was God, for sure, right? I think he, he wanted to confirm and clarify this and humbly just make sure it, that it's really him. Yeah. But he knew it's God. And then Jesus clarifies says, I am Jesus. In the testimony in Acts 22, Paul says that, he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth which really pinpointed that you're the Jesus that I'm against. You're the Jesus that the people are believing in and saying is the way, the truth, and the light. It, it, and can you imagine Paul going, the Jesus who, who lived on this earth, the Jesus who died on the cross, that Jesus who the believers are claiming to be resurrected, this is you? This is you. This is you. You're God. Which proves all that the believers are saying is true. That you know what? Jesus is the Messiah God. Isn't this amazing? Isn't this amazing how this unfolded before Saul? How suddenly, oh my gosh, it's all revealed to him. God's presence, His light, God, Jesus appearing before Him. Few words are, are said here, but yet in the few words are 
huge truth and a huge revelation for Paul. You know, I believe it's right here between the white spaces in verse 5 that Saul believes and becomes saved in Jesus Christ. I believe it was here. I believe it was, it was this moment that he comes to the Lord and, and gives his heart to God. And what we say today, yeah, he accepts Jesus. Yeah? He repents before God. He, he gives his life and heart over to God. He believes in Christ. He, with, with what we just saw, this is where Saul, or the Apostle Paul, became saved. You know, for me, I believe a seed had been planted Back in Acts chapter 7, with the stoning of Stephen, I believe that, that, that just hearing Stephen say, oh, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. I see the glory of God. I believe that when he heard Stephen say, if you remember at the end of that chapter, when his, the last thing in his dying breath, when he was being stoned to death, Stephen said, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Maybe Saul was holding the clothes, watching all this happen, saying, who would say a thing like that? I think perhaps it was that seed, maybe that last word of Stephen that penetrated into his heart and lodged in there. Maybe, maybe it was that that even made him more mad and more hostile and more aggressive against believers and, and, and maybe even traveling to you know, Samaria to get to Damascus and seeing revival and there's talk of Jesus. Maybe it just oh, filled him with hate. Maybe he was so angry, frustrated. He, he became hateful and bitter. And that darkness came. The bondage, right? If you think about that, the bondage came. Perhaps in this horrible darkness, Saul, even in himself, deep inside, knew, what am I doing? This is wrong. This darkness that's driving me to arrest and beat people and torture people, make them blaspheme Christ and denounce Christ and drag them off to prison, even be party to their death. But you know what's great? Is in this horrible darkness and bondage, the light came in. The light came upon Saul. The face of God looked down upon him. The voice came out, convicted Saul of his sinful rage. He thought he was for God, but he was actually so against God. And then, you know what I think? Everything clicked. It all clicked. Jesus is alive. Then everything started to click what the believers were saying. Everything clicked. What for, I'm sure he was in that, that court hearing with Stephen when Stephen, remember, was giving his message about Christ and going through the history of Israel. I think it all clicked in his mind. Everything he, de- he, he they were debating him you know, with the, uh, with the Sanhedrin or, or even, uh, uh, I'm sure he was debating believers too. But all of a sudden it all clicked. And so that seed sprouted. That seed sprouted into faith and salvation. And Saul, acknowledging Jesus now as Lord and his Savior. I believe when the voice said, I am Jesus, that light turned on his heart. And, and, and he was fallen and he bowed down even more and he, he, he was humbled even more. Shattered. Because he thought he was, he was doing this for God, but he was really against God. He was broken. And I believe he was repentant. And he believed in Christ right there. No wonder Romans 10.9, it says, if you confess with your mouth, well, Paul wrote this, right? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I think this is what he did, and that's why he wrote it in Romans 10. He confessed. He saw, you are Lord. You are Jesus. I believe that he saw the resurrected Christ, that he did rise again from the dead, and he did believe. And right then, he was saved. The humbling of Saul resulted in his salvation, you guys. 
this humbling that happened resulted in his salvation. You know, I, I don't know what your testimony is like, but isn't that what happens? We are humbled before God. Where we become broken before God. We realize, I can't do it. I can't save myself or I can't fix this situation. And we come to God and realize, I can't do it. I need you, Jesus. We can't make ourselves right with God. And we're humbled before the Lord. Our pride is broken. Thinking we got it all together, but we don't. Thinking we know. We know about God, you know. We, I mean, how many of us maybe have put together our own religion, right? A little bit of this, a little bit of that. And we, got, we got it together. But in the end, you end up empty still. You end up at a loss and not content and not fulfilled. And, and you're like running around trying to find that. And then you're broken before the Lord realizing, Jesus, you're the one. And we're humble. I like to think that what happened with Stephen and the mentioning of Saul, even back in chapter 7 of Acts, was there for us to see that a seed was planted. I like to think that. Did you know Abraham Lincoln said he clearly remembers taking a flatboat trip down the Mississippi to New Orleans and then seeing his first slave auction? It was in 1831, and then 30, it was 32 years before he signed the Emancipation Proclamation. He said it, it ignited his thinking. I think it was something like that. I think, I think what, what Saul saw in the witness of Stephen, Stephen's words was like that, that time bomb that was, you know, the fuses ignited. And in God's sovereign plan, it was going to explode right here on this road to Damascus. And it's gonna, it exploded into salvation and faith in Jesus Christ. I want to say, you know, that's why it's so important, you guys. We keep throwing out those seeds of the Word. Yeah? Keep planting them. Keep putting them out to people. Keep, keep, keep talking to people about Jesus. Keep, keep putting little things out there. You, you don't have to push it down their throat. But put out the word. Put out, put out little things about Jesus. Those seeds. And, and in time, they're going to sprout. In time, in God's time, it'll be that time bomb that the Holy Spirit will use later to save someone. You never know how God can use it. So never stop. Never stop planting seeds. Well, so, verse 8 says, now, or verse 6, let's go back to verse 6. Uh, the Lord says, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. So, the men didn't hear what was going on, but Saul clearly got instructions, and the Lord told Saul to get up, go into the city of Damascus, and wait for instructions basically. In Acts chapter 22, 10, uh, Saul says that uh, he actually asked, what do you want me to do? So in that moment after he's saved, he's, he's really surrendered his heart to God, saying, okay, God, what do you want me to do now? So Saul rose up after being saved, verse 8, and it says, although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. So he got up. They, he had to be led into the city. Uh, why? Because he couldn't see anything. He, his eyes were open, but he was blind. He saw nothing. So he had to be led into the city. And for three days... He couldn't see. For three days, he neither ate nor drank. He, he was like, uh, all of this, I think he, he was like fasting and he was pondering everything that just happened. I, I believe this. I think God gave him three days, you know what, to focus in on Jesus. To process all that clicked in his mind now. To, to, to process all that 
happened. We, uh, we, we understand later that he, uh, he spent some time alone with the Lord, and I believe the Lord trained him. But I, I, I think God gave him three days. Think about this. He couldn't see, right? What was the last image that he saw? Jesus. And so God wanted him just to focus on that. God wanted him to have that image right there. We could say the blindness of the light not, didn't bring darkness, but it burned his retina, not with the sun, S-U-N, but the sun, S-O-N, of God. I like that, yeah? You know how you look at the sun like, oh, and you get that little. Think about Jesus now in his mind. I believe God gave time for Saul to realize that he's saved. His heart has changed. That is transformed. And you know what? That he's forgiven. I believe it gave uh, Saul time with that image of Jesus. Going back over what happened on that road. What happened in that moment. I believe it gave Saul to even be more humbled to realize, God, why would you do that for me? Why would you stop and meet me there and save me? I'm sure he thought of what Stephen said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I'm sure that led him to, to this thought that he was not met with judgment, but he was forgiven. But he was given what? Grace. Grace. Did he deserve this? He was directly going against God and fighting God, kicking against the goats. He was directly persecuting and torturing and, and even putting to death God's sheep, his children. Does he deserve salvation? Does he deserve forgiveness? He was not met with judgment, but with grace. So have that in your mind right now. Put that in your mind. As I say, no wonder... And this is not just theological, but I think this is deep inside him because of what he experienced. No wonder Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by what? Grace, right? You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's what? A gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Great. He, he, he experienced that grace. It was nothing he did. It was, it was none of the things that were listed in uh, Philippians 3, 2, right? About, oh, he's a Pharisee, right? Hebrew of Hebrews, right? All of that. It was not his works, but it was grace. And look what he was doing. He was going against God. All along, all along, Jesus is the Lord. He is the Messiah. And he's fighting against God. And he was zealous about it, thinking that, well, I'm doing this for the Lord. So he had to have a passion for God, a passion for, for honoring God and, and honoring his holiness. I mean, that was a good thing in his heart, but it was a misguided zeal. No wonder in Romans 5.20 it says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Grace abounded, he said. No wonder Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that powerful? I mean, in light of what we're learning here, we're seeing here, it's powerful to me to, to read these scriptures, and these ones that I just read to you and gave to you. It, it's huge. I was really moved today going, Wow, I, I see it, God. I, I, I see what Paul experienced and why. It's grace. He was saved by grace. So that's, that's our title. So the humbling of Saul cemented in his heart, salvation is by grace alone. And of course in Jesus Christ. Yeah. Salvation is by grace. Grace of God. 
grace in Jesus Christ. This Baptist pastor, um, Ralph Kuyper, was once asked, what is your favorite doctrine? Like, you know, what, what you like to talk about. What are you into? And you know what he answered? Nothing compares with the doctrine of God's grace. Right? Grace. God's favor, right? The definition of grace. Uh, uh, God's favor upon us. That we don't deserve, but he, he gives toward us. I mean, out of all the guys, right? That God would stop on that road, that would reveal himself to. He did it to Saul. He did it to the very guy that was trying to destroy the early church. Yet God reached out to him. To him. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, Love that reaches up is adoration. Love that reaches across is affection. Love that reaches down is grace. I love that. Do you see what God's grace has done? Think about God's grace in your life. You know, we're only here because of this grace. Every one of us. No wonder Paul talks about in Corinthians about the sufficient grace that we have every day. We don't deserve it. We don't really deserve Jesus in our lives to be saved. We, we deserve to die in our sins and the consequences of sin is hell. Well, that's what we deserve. But God in his love and grace toward us, he saved us. So you guys, be grateful today for God and his grace in your life. We just sang uh, the goodness of God, right? He's been so good to us. You look, look back in, you know, in the past, in your life. Think of, you know what I think about? I think about before I was in Jesus, yeah, I look back and I say, God, you were still with me. <laughs> Even when I'm lost in my sins, you still took care of me. You saved me from accidents, you know, right? You were still there, that I could be alive here today, that I would be alive at the time when I gave my life to you, Jesus. That's God's goodness and his grace. And his goodness is because of his grace. So let's be grateful and understand that, the depth of that meaning, especially as we see in the life of Saul. So do you see what God's grace does? It can give you life in Jesus today. And I put that out. Maybe there's someone online connected or maybe you're going to hear this later. But anyone at the sound of my voice, even on a podcast, perhaps it's time that you give your life to Christ. Because God's grace is reaching out to you. Maybe you feel shame from your past sins and maybe you don't want to come to church or even come to God because, oh, I don't know. You know, I talk to some people who are like, well, uh, once I do better, then I'll come to church. Yeah. But no, you got to come to church to, to get better, right? Yeah. Because it's Jesus who saves us and transforms us and heals us and forgives us so that we can know God, so that we can walk with the Lord. You know, maybe you're ashamed to show your face because you think everyone else is going to be like, oh, look at that guy. But it's not true. We've all been, yeah, in that same place, needing God's grace, shame of our sins. It's not that many might be shocked by sin, but you know, we all should be stunned by grace, right? That's what's important. That's what's important. I pray that you would give your life to Christ tonight. That you would receive God's grace and his love for you. If you're online and you're hearing this, you're watching this now, give your life to Jesus. Confess your sins. Repent before him. Go to the cross and find forgiveness. Accept Jesus. Give him, surrender your life to him. And he'll be right there to receive you, just as he did Saul. I'm going to close with this. Uh, in 1950, 
on the front page of a Japanese newspapers, or actually uh, there was this headline in these Japanese newspapers, and it, it said this, Pearl Harbor Hero Converts to Christianity. It was about the lieutenant commander Mitsuo Fuchida, who was the commander who actually led the attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. He was the one who actually radioed back to the Japanese, Japanese fleet the code words, Tora, 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 which meant the U.S. was uh, taken complete by surprise. Well, what happened was, after World War II, he went back to his farm as a defeated warrior, basically. He went back to that life. But he was all empty inside. Then by chance, one day, he was handed a tract by a man named Jacob DeShazer. And the tract was called, I Was a Prisoner of War in Japan. Now, DeShazer, he was imprisoned through the whole war, actually, in Japan after being captured when uh, the, the bomber he was flying in and his crew crashed and they were taken prisoner. He was part of the Doolittle Raiders. I don't know if you know the story, but Eisenhower got the, these uh, B-24s and stripped them of guns and stuff to go and, and pay back Japan by bombing them, uh, taking off on aircraft carriers. It was a secret mission, but now they're, they're famous for doing that, sacrificing their life. It was a one-way trip, basically. The plan was to land in China, which were allies back then, and, and, and be rescued there. But many of these bombers ended up going down, shot down, and, and DeShazer uh, became a prisoner of war. Uh, during, during that time, I, I just love the story. Um, he, he was in prison. It was, it was bad conditions. And you know what? He, he started to remember. Talk about seeds. He started to remember his his. Bible lessons he learned in, in Keiki Church in Sunday school. And, and by a miracle, he asked for a Bible, and the Japanese soldier found him. And so he became a Christian, basically, in uh, Japan as a prisoner of war. Thus, uh, after the war, he went back to America, but then he came back to Japan as a missionary. And he wrote this testimony, I was a prisoner of Japan, to, sh- to share that story about Christ. Well, Fujita happened to uh, get that trap and he read it and it moved his heart and he ended up coming to Jesus Christ. Isn't that crazy? Inside his newly bought Bible, he wrote this. That day, April 14, 1950, became the second day of my life to remember. On that day, I became a new person. My complete view of life was changed by the intervention of the Christ I had always hated and ignored before. Oh, it sounds like Saul, yeah. And uh, he went on to write a book of his testimony called From Pearl Harbor to Calvary. Crazy. He also went around as an evangelist. God used him as an evangelist and missionary. I, uh, I remember seeing a PBS uh, show about that. He actually came to America and would go from churches apologizing for his role in Pearl Harbor and, and then sharing Jesus and what God had done in his life. He would go around sharing, um, I'll quote this, I would give anything to retract my actions of 29 years ago at Pearl Harbor, but it is impossible. Instead, I now work at striking the death blow to the basic hatred which infests the human heart and causes such tragedies. And that hatred cannot be uprooted without assistance from Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? God definitely can change a life and he can change our life. And it's not us. Our salvation is a gift of God. What his work in us is God doing that work. And he starts it at salvation. And isn't it amazing how God can save the one you think would never be saved. And then they're saved. And next week we're going to see how 
Saul would be put into, how God calls him into ministry. The beginnings of him becoming the apostle Paul. What a great story to me. How we're saved by grace and called by grace. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to a close here tonight and before we worship you, Lord, we know that the only reason we're here is because of your grace. And your salvation is based on your grace through faith in you, Jesus. In the, in the work that you have done, God, for us, for we can never work our way to heaven, work our way to atone for our sins or have forgiveness, but it's you, you alone, Jesus, and it's all by grace. And so, Lord, let us all find security in that. Even when, as believers, we fail you, we sin, we get tripped up, Lord, God, thank you that the promises there is in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, Lord, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, you're the one who can do that and you still are giving grace, Lord, every day to us because we're so imperfect human beings. Tonight, Lord, I pray for anyone, God, that has never given their heart to you. I pray that this would be the moment. Pray that they would surrender their heart to you, God, as you are reaching out in grace to them. I pray for anyone here tonight who may be under the burden and weight of condemnation, not understanding that you can free us from our guilt because of what you've done on the cross. That even as Christians can walk around in condemnation, but you tell us that therefore if anyone is in Christ, there is no condemnation. Lord, it's because you've died on the cross for us. You've done the work. Let us believe that and understand that tonight. And I pray for your spirit to release us tonight, to come to you, to find that forgiveness, the release of guilt, and to understand who we are in you today as children of God because of what the gospel says, because of the truth that you are the way, the truth, and the life, Lord, that you are the one, and you are our resurrected Lord, that you are alive, that you are our Lord God, ruling and reigning even now. Lord, I, I pray for anyone, God, that needs healing, that is perhaps suffering, going through some painful times and even thinking that, oh, maybe God's punishing me. It, it's not that. We all go through trials. But God's grace is upon you. Even when we fail to do what you want us to do during those times and we let the flesh come in, your grace is still there and you will never leave us nor forsake us because of your grace. Tonight, if anyone at the sound of my voice wants to receive Christ right now, I want you to just repeat after me. Dear Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me now. As I give you my life, I accept you into my heart. Change me, free me, and fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.